Hey, what's up, psychos? Welcome to another episode of Take Your Pills, Psychopath, the comedy podcast that exploits mental illness for personal profit. Ka-ching! What? Trademark. I'm your host, John F. O'Donnell, J. Fod. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. We have got a solo episode lined up for you today where I scour the interwebs for psychology and psychiatry information, the latest pieces that are being written, and then I kind of curate them into an interesting um, segment, episode, episode, yeah, episode, and we read through them, give some commentary. I've gotten positive feedback about this format when I don't have a guest, so that is cool. Let me know what you think. Drop me a line at takeyourpillspod at gmail.com. That's always appreciated. And uh, yeah, my big ask for you guys is that you check out my stand-up comedy special, The Manic Depressive Chocolate Fountain Operator. It's on YouTube. All you have to do is type my name, John F. O'Donnell, into YouTube, and it comes right up. And if you're feeling gracious, please leave a like and a comment because that helps the algorithm show it to other people. So yeah, that would be really cool if you did that. Um, and of course, there's the Patreon, patreon.com slash jfod for bonus material, and that really helps me out. Um, so what is new with me? I got to go on a family vacation to Wyoming for a few days. I got to go to Wyoming for a few days to see Yellowstone National Park. Um, I don't get to leave the city too often, so this was exciting for me. Uh, I saw some beautiful mountains, some beautiful hot springs, and just some wonderful country. It was great to convene with nature, to be with my family, to have that experience, and I'm grateful for it. Uh, but now I'm back in the city, back in the grind of, you know, trying to make it work doing stand-up and doing the podcast and just searching for money. You know, it is a challenging city to live in, but I feel nourished, I feel invigorated, reinvigorated, and ready to uh, move forward as the summer turns into fall. And I'm excited about the podcast, and I think we're growing, which is so so nice. So that's another helpful thing you could do is spread the word about it if you think it's worthwhile to do so. That would be really cool. And let's go over what we're going to cover today. Um, we've got five surprising ways gut health affects mental health. You know I love talking about that gut biome. Those neurons in the gut and how it's condition and how it's connected to mental health and how that is a new field of study that keeps growing and growing. So I found an interesting piece about that. So we're going to talk more about that. Uh, we also got can depression deny you entry to the United States? What? I thought that was a very very eye grabbing title. Uh, and I think it's going to be an interesting piece talking about how uh, people with with mental health diagnoses can potentially be uh, be denied entry. Kind of wild. So we'll see what that's about. Then we've got a piece entitled Schizophrenia and the College Years. And this is from somebody who uh, who has schizophrenia that was onset in college and what that perspective uh, was like from her, what that was like from her perspective. Uh, so I think that's worthwhile to talk about because schizophrenia is still so stigmatized. Next section, mass shooters, a systematic psychiatric study. So a psychological profile, a breakdown of the, uh, the psychiatric diagnoses of mass shooters. And things like that. So I thought that would be a worthwhile thing to get into. Yeah, the episodes can get, uh, you know, can get can get dark. But that's what we do here sometimes to take your pill psychopath. Um, next uh, article from a different news outlet or a psychology outlet um, related. Do mass shootings increase the belief that people with mental illness are dangerous? This, I think, is an interesting, worthwhile thing to cover. Because it's something I 
worry about as someone that has a diagnosis of mental illness. If people think I'm going to be dangerous, even though I haven't exhibited it as being dangerous, um, am I worried that maybe I could be? All sorts of conflicting emotions and just uh, heavy feelings surrounding that. And then we've got nine Delta male traits and characteristics. I don't know what a Delta male is, but I want to find out. There's all different, I guess, categories of males. Um Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Sigma, Omega, or Delta. Uh, so this we're going to learn about Deltas. And I think that will get us through to the uh, for this episode. But if not, I got some backup articles just in case. So yeah, uh, hopefully you find these, these concepts, these pieces interesting. And let's get into it. Here we go. Five... Surprising Ways Gut Health Affects Mental Health Scientists Continue to Uncover Secrets of the Gut-Brain Axis And this is by Ed Ergenzinger, who is a PhD Alright, cool Some key points, and this is in Psychology Today um, Which continues to do very good work Uh, The gut-brain axis has been a hot topic of research in recent years Altered gut microbiota have been linked to brain-based conditions such as depression, anxiety, autism spectrum disorder, and Alzheimer's. A next key point, the hope is that changes in the microbiome may be harnessed to provide new non-invasive diagnostic biomarkers and treatments. Oh my goodness. Interesting. I find this so fascinating. Here we go. Inside the walls of your digestive system is a second brain. Ooh, 100 million nerve cells lining your gastrointestinal GI tract, collectively called the enteric nervous system. Quote, the gut-brain access consists of bidirectional communication between the brain and the gut, which links emotional and cognitive centers of the brain with peripheral intestinal functions, says Professor Nick Spencer from the Flinders University College of Medicine and Public Health. Quote, recent advances in research have described the importance of gut microbiota in influencing these pathways. Here are five surprising facts about gut health and how it can impact mental health. One, the gut produces most of the serotonin in the body. Interesting. The intestine produces 95% of the body's serotonin via specialized cells within the gut wall called enterochromaphin EC cells. Professor Professor Spencer and colleagues published results earlier this year showing that EC cells release serotonin when they are stimulated by food, which then acts on nerves that communicate with the brain. Okay, although the serotonin hypothesis of depression has recently been challenged... The issue is complicated by the fact that serotonin drugs still work for many and just how much of that may be due to their effects on the gut-brain access is still being worked out. Okay, this is fascinating stuff. If you psychos remember in a very recent episode, we covered um, how the hypothesis of depression, although the the serotonin hypothesis of depression has been challenged, uh, but SSRIs still do work and it's complicated. Uh, they're saying that this may be due to their effects on the gut-brain axis. It's still all being worked out. Okay, all right. The constantly evolving and changing understanding of the brain, of the gut, of psychology, of psychiatry. That's part of the reason that we do this, just to keep our finger on the pulse of what's going on. Second reason, two, gut bacteria and metabolites have been linked to depression and quality of life. In recent years, mounting evidence has shown a link between altered gut microbiota and major depressive disorders, MDD. Quote, the relationship between gut microbial metabolism and mental health is a controversial topic in microbiome research, says Professor Jerome Race of the 
Flanders Institute for Biotechnology. Quote, the notion that microbial metabolites can interact with our brain and thus our behavior and feelings is intriguing. Multiple studies have reported that MDD is associated with decreased counts of bacteria that produce uh, butyrate, such as Lachnospiraceae and, oh, this is a tough one, Fecalibacterium and short-chain fatty acids, such as Bifidobacterium and Lactobacillus. I'm sure I nailed all of those. Some studies have reported a decrease in bacteroidetes with MDD, which has also been associated with obesity and diabetes. Professor Reyes and colleagues also found that the presence of microbes that produce the neurotransmitter Y-aminobutyric acid, GABA, or a metabolite of the neurotransmitter dopamine, was positively associated with mental quality of life. Although most of these studies have been correlational, rats or mice that receive fecal microbe transplants, sounds fun, from MDD patients exhibit depressive and anxiety-like behaviors, which suggest a causal effect of altered microbiota in depression. Three, probiotics enhance antidepressants. Okay. So prebiotics uh, is something that you take ahead of time to get the good bacteria going in your gut. And probiotics is to continue to cultivate that. I believe I'm getting that right. Scientists from the University of Basel and the University Psychiatric Clinics Basel, UPK, reported it in the journal Translational Psychiatry that probiotics can enhance antidepressant treatments. Among subjects with depression, those given a probiotic in addition to antidepressants for 31 days showed an increase in lactic acid bacteria in their intestinal flora compared to those given antidepressants alone. They also showed a greater improvement in depressive symptoms and a normalization of brain activity in brain regions associated with emotional processing. Quote, although the microbiome gut-brain access has been the subject of research for a number of years, the exact mechanisms are yet to be fully clarified, said Anna Shiara Schaub, a doctoral student in the Department of Psychiatry at UPK and a co-author of the study. Quote, with additional knowledge of the specific effect of certain bacteria, it may be possible to optimize the selection of bacteria and to use the best mix in order to support treatment for depression. Four, those with gut disorders are at greater risk for Alzheimer's disease. Last month, a team led by Dr. Emmanuel uh, Adewuyi at Edith Cowan University reported the discovery that Alzheimer's disease, AD, and gut disorders share a number of common genes. These common genes are involved in lipid-related and autoimmune cellular pathways. Quote, Looking at the genetic and biological characteristics common to AD and these gut disorders suggests a strong role for lipids metabolism, the immune system, and cholesterol-lowering medications, says Dr. Adewuyi. Quote, Whilst further study is needed into the shared mechanisms between the conditions, there is evidence high cholesterol can transfer into the central nervous system and that abnormal blood lipids may be caused or made worse by gut bacteria. The study's findings suggest that both diet and cholesterol-lowering medications, such as statins, could be effective treatments for both AD and gut disorders. All right. Five, gut microbiota may help diagnose and treat anxiety, autism spectrum disorder, and Parkinson's disease. This is a big deal, man. Along with MDD and AD, microbiota changes have been linked to several other brain-based conditions, such as anxiety disorders and autism spectrum disorder, ASD. For example, unique gut microbiome 
signatures have been identified that distinguish MDD from general anxiety disorder. The relative amount of certain species of bacteria and the persistent underdevelopment of gut microbiota has been shown in children with ASD, autism spectrum disorder. The hope is that such changes in the microbiome may be harnessed to provide non-invasive diagnostic biomarkers and treatments for these and other brain-based conditions linked to gut microbiota, such as Parkinson's disease, epilepsy, and headache disorders. There is definitely something here, psychos. Conclusion. The relationship between gut health and mental well-being is an area of ongoing research. By studying this system, we may be able to develop new ways of diagnosing and treating mental health conditions. Although the progress that has been made so far is very promising, there is still a lot of work to be done in order to fully understand the role of the gut-brain axis in mental health. There you go. There you go. So that is the latest of what's going on with the gut-brain axis, y'all. Um, worth knowing about. Seems to be the thing. I don't know. Some of you psychos may know I'm a dirty little vegan bitch. So, I don't know. In my mind, that keeps my gut biome uh, clean and good. But who knows? Who knows? Um, but I do know that the bacteria in my gut is different from someone that does consume a lot of animal products. So I don't know if it's for the better. That's my intuition. We'll see what happens. Who knows if I stick with the vegan thing forever? I don't know. I don't know. What do you guys think? Drop me a line at takeyourpillspod at gmail.com. Okay, let's move on to the next piece. The intriguing title of can depression deny you entry to the united states and this is from psych central is it possible to be denied visitation or immigration to the united states if you have a diagnosed mental health condition like depression in some cases a depression diagnosis can make it difficult to enter the country If you apply for a U.S. visa, depression might lead to your application being denied, especially if you've engaged in self-harm or attempted suicide. Okay, this seems to uh, spit in the face of the uh, ethos of America taking the, uh, I can't remember the quote, of taking your so-and-so, your so-and-so, your this, your that, your weary, your etc. You know, you guys know what I'm talking about. Can you get a green card if you have depression? You might be able to get a green card if you have depression, but in some cases you might not. To apply for a temporary visa or lawful permanent residence, which is a green card, you'll need to show that you don't present a health risk to the public. According to NOLO, you might be denied entry to the United States if you have or have had a mental health condition that causes you to engage in harmful behavior to yourself or to others. Immigration law bars non-citizens from entering the United States or obtaining a green card if they have both of the following. A physical or mental disorder that can be clinically diagnosed, or behavior associated with the disorder that can pose or has posed a threat to the property, safety, or welfare of the immigrant to others in the public. Wow. I wonder if other countries have that same thing because a physical or mental disorder that can can be clinically diagnosed, so many folks have that. So many folks, I suppose, can't immigrate to another country if other countries have the same standards. When it comes to clinical diagnosis, they'll likely use the diagnostic criteria in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 5th edition, text revision, DSM-5-TR. The DSM-5-TR is the Clinician's Comprehensive Guide to Diagnosing Mental Health Disorders in the United States. 
And as we know, the DSM-5-TR may be very imperfect and limited in the fact that it focuses so much on a diagnostic label compared to looking at a spectrum of uh, symptoms. Okay, little sidebar here. The U.S. Immigration and Nationality Act, Section 212, denies entry to people who have had a physical or mental disorder that could pose a, quote, threat to the property, safety, or welfare, end quote, of themselves or others. You might need clearance from a medical professional if you have a mental health condition. Medical exams are required for all immigrant visa applications and some, and some non-immigrant visa applications. The outcome de- can depend on whether you've harmed yourself or others in the past, whether you're currently experiencing any symptoms, whether you're a current risk to yourself or others, how long ago you harmed or attempted to harm yourself or others. All right. What about if you're actively being treated and actively on top of your mental health with a mental health regimen? What about that? Even if you don't consider yourself a danger, a danger to yourself or others, you may be denied entry. What about an undiagnosed condition? Ooh, interesting. If you suspect you might have a mental health condition, but it isn't diagnosed, it's unlikely to affect your visa application, especially if there's no medical history or paper trail to confirm your symptoms. Makes sense. Uh, wow, what an incentive not to seek help. Huh? You won't be able to get into the country? Yeah, you're definitely not going to seek help to get a paper trail connected to your potential mental health condition. However, if you're planning to immigrate to the United States, you'll need to undergo a medical exam. The medical professional who uh, examines you might ask you about your mental health and whether you have any symptoms of mental health conditions. As mentioned earlier, immigration law specifically bars non-citizens from entering the country if they have a clinically diagnosable condition and you could pose a threat to and and could pose a threat to themselves or others if you don't fit the criteria for diagnosis your mental health might not be a barrier to entering the united states can you immigrate to the u.s if you've self-harmed or attempted suicide possibly but depending on the outcome of your medical exam, you might be denied entry. If your self-harm or suicide attempt is linked to a mental health condition and a medical professional claims it's likely to recur, your visa application will likely be denied. Okay. Um, yeah, this is wild, man. What if you're actively getting treated, huh? Can you immigrate to the U.S. if you've been in therapy? Please say yes. (laughs) Many people go to therapy without having a clinically diagnosable mental health condition. Similarly, many people who go to therapy are not at risk of harming themselves or others. Receiving a green card is possible even if you have been in therapy. However, if you disclose that you've received mental health treatment, you'll probably have to get clearance from a registered medical professional as part of your visa application process. Okay, so if you admit you've been to therapy, you have to go through some more bureaucracy in order to get your visa application processed. Can tourists be denied entry to the United States because of depression? In 2013, a story broke about a Canadian woman who was denied entry to the United States because she was previously hospitalized for depression. Oh, dear. According to the Toronto Star, Ellen Richardson planned to embark on a 10-day cruise from New York City but was denied entry by a U.S. Customs and Border Protection agent, uh, CBP, Customs and Border Protection agent with the Department of Homeland Security. She was told that this was because she had been hospitalized for clinical depression the year before. To gain entry, <clears throat> to gain entry, the C 
BP agent told her she'd need medical clearance from certain doctors. Her psychiatrist's clearance wouldn't work. The story raised questions about how the Customs and Border Protection agent could access her private medical records given that she was treated in Canada. Good question. According to NPR, experts say that cases like Richards, Richardson's are uncommon but not unheard of. Although many people who are hospitalized for depression are able to enter the United States as tourists, there is a possibility that you might be denied entry. Wow. The fact that there's even a possibility is bonkers to me. It's absolutely ridiculous. And she wanted to go on a cruise. That would maybe help with any depressive issues. Ridiculous. Which psychiatric conditions can preclude you from immigrating to the United States? If you have any mental health condition that can make you a danger to yourself or others, you could be denied entry to the United States. Conditions can include mood disorders. Boom! I'm at the top of the list. All right. Uh, Good thing I guess I'm already here. Uh, Anxiety disorders with a history or signs of potential harmful behavior. Personality disorders. Substance use disorders. Interesting. Schizophrenia and related disorders. Having the above disorders doesn't necessarily mean you are dangerous to yourself or others. According to mentalhealth.gov, only 3% to 5% of violent acts can be attributed to people with serious mental health conditions. Folks with mental health disorders aren't necessarily more violent than the general population, although they might be stigmatized as dangerous. This is something we're going to get into in the, uh, in the following articles. Still, people with certain mental illnesses might be deemed a risk by immigration officials. Let's recap. It's uncertain whether you'll be granted entry to the United States if you live with a mental health diagnosis or have experienced self-harm in the past. Many people manage to travel to the United States despite having depression. Predicting the outcome of a U.S. visa application isn't as cut and dry as many hope. If you'd like more personalized advice, you might want to consult with an immigration lawyer. In the meantime, here are helpful resources for traveling when you manage certain mental health conditions. And then there's some links. Uh, Wow. What an interesting piece and troubling piece. Talk about discrimination. Um, People being denied immigration based on mental health status. Troubling, in my opinion. Yeah. Let's uh, let's keep going. Let's keep going. All right. Next piece. Schizophrenia and the college years. Personal perspective. Warning signs of my schizophrenia appeared in college. And this is by Bethany Yeiser. Some key points. Recognizing the first signs of a mental health disorder like schizophrenia is key to getting proper treatment. Unfortunately, most people aren't trained to identify early warning cues. Symptoms like a lack of friends, apathy, obsessive tendencies, and delusions are all indications that something may be wrong. Here we go. Schizophrenia can be a thief, robbing a young individual of some of the best years of their life. In my blog post, Schizophrenia and Ambitions, I wrote about my college experience while developing schizophrenia. I went from a promising honor student to failing and then through to recovery, finally finishing my degree in molecular biology, magna cum laude. There you go. Schizophrenia is not a death sentence, huh? People with schizophrenia can still achieve in huge ways, something you don't really hear about. My first signs of schizophrenia were subtle. Here are a few things that were amiss at age 17 as a college freshman. Lack of friends in social life. During my first year at the university, I spent very little time with others. I preferred to eat by myself in the cafeteria. 
I never attended any dormitory get-togethers or parties. I don't recall ever going to any kind of sports event, dance, or concert with a friend. The only exception to this was attending church, but I arrived late and left quickly when it ended. I preferred isolation. Obsession with study and work. I was in hyperdrive. I could not stop working or studying. I would quickly eat, sleep for seven hours, and spend every free minute either studying or in the lab. Sometimes when I had caught up with studying and lab work, I would go to the lab anyway and sit on a bench to read research articles. I simply could not stop. I did not know at the time that my behavior had crossed the line from normal to abnormal. I was experiencing experiencing a symptom that I had never heard of before called mania. And this overlaps with bipolar disorder and having manic episodes, which, as you psychos know, I have experienced. Apathy and lack of interest. In my first year at the university, I pursued my dreams, which included working in the research lab and becoming concertmaster of the university's community orchestra. These activities were fulfilling to me and made me happy. I had worked very hard to land my research position and practice many hours a day for many years to become the first violinist and concertmaster. When I gave up these activities, I did not replace them. Instead, I spent more and more time alone, not really interested in anything. Delusions. Fixed false beliefs. My first delusions came on very slowly. During my first year in the university laboratory, my professor used to joke about winning a Nobel Prize for his research discoveries. This was unrealistic and certainly only a joke. However, I took it very seriously. In my second semester at the university, I began researching full-time and my grades suffered. But with the goal of being part of a Nobel Prize-winning project, I felt my grades in classes were suddenly irrelevant. This was also a huge change for me, as I had kept a 4.0 in high school while taking difficult college classes for dual university and high school credit. Notably, my hallucinations, altered reality, did not show up while I was in college. I dropped out in 2003 and experienced my first hallucinations on January 28, 2006, revising the past. But what do I feel could have been done differently during my three years in college? I could have been convinced to build a social life. My parents sat down with me and explained that having no social life was unhealthy and that I would, in fact, do better in school and research if I incorporated a time in my schedule to relax and hang out with others. Of course, in my illness, I thought I knew better and was deaf to their advice. Today, in recovery, I heavily depend on my friends. Spending time with them helps me clear my mind and feel refreshed. Today, in recovery, I genuinely enjoy spending time with others, as well as attending my church and social events there. I only wish that when my parents had tried to tell me I needed a social life, I would have listened. I could have shared my grades. My grades dropped while I was working in the laboratory, but I was very secretive about this around my parents, who were spending hundreds of dollars a month to pay for my housing and the expenses my scholarship and financial aid did not cover. I had mixed feelings. I was still delusional and convinced my research project might lead to a Nobel Prize, but I think I was also quite disappointed with myself and embarrassed. I wish I had disclosed to a friend or family member that my grades had slipped and something felt wrong. I could have learned about what mania looked like. When I was in college, I knew almost nothing about mental illness, including delusions, mania, and other symptoms. I wish that I had been educated to recognize various symptoms, including mania, while in high school. Perhaps if I had been educated about mania, I would have actually recognized it in myself and made the decision to change something, to work fewer hours, or perhaps take a lighter course load if I wanted to spend so many hours in the lab. At the same time, no matter what choices I made at that time, my doctor believes I still would have developed schizophrenia. Today, I greatly recognize the importance of mental health education and early intervention. Wow, she is so interesting. This is, uh, this is a very, very insightful, uh, worthwhile piece to read. 
I could have been less afraid to see a counselor. And some of this stuff, like in terms of my journey of accepting bipolar disorder and all of that, this resonates with me. I could have been less afraid to see a counselor. I never considered seeing a counselor in college. Of course, there was my academic advisor, but I saw him for short periods of time and never liked him very much. When he seemed disappointed that my grades had dropped, I felt frustrated that he was unaware my research could lead to accolades and a bright future, which was partly true but mostly unrealistic. I never really benefited from discussing my academic situation with him, and my social life, of course, was never talked about. I used to think counselors were for people who needed help or were weak or struggling, but today I realize that all of us really could benefit from talking through and analyzing our lives. I wonder if I might have come to notice my mania and sought help if I had met with a counselor who was better informed about emerging symptoms of bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. Wow, interesting. Maybe she has schizoaffective, which is a combination of bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, sort of. Um, Wow. Aside from my parents, whom I strongly whom I was strongly pushing out of my life, the closest thing I had to a counselor was my pastor. At one point, he gently told me that my life was out of balance. It was tremendously hurtful, but he was right. And though his advice hurt, it was also eye, it also was eye-opening, but at that point, I did not have enough insight to act on his advice. The stigma of brain disorders is so strong that it drives people away from seeking help. As you begin this new semester in school or continue your work, remember to spend time with others and relax. Find fulfillment in hard work, but not at the expense of your mental health. Learn about healthy habits and be on the lookout for friends and family members whose lives are out of balance. And of course, examine your own life as well. If things don't seem right, seek help. Early treatment could significantly improve the trajectory of your life for years to come. Yep, she's right. I mean, I would be lying to you, psychos, if I told you that I don't live with some regret for having not been as proactive about my mental health and taking care of bipolar disorder uh, at a younger age. Tried to outrun my illness for a very long time, many years. Uh... And that has caused some exploded relationships, certainly setbacks career-wise, all sorts of stuff like that. And I feel grateful to be where I'm at now and hopeful that I can maintain that and move forward. But yeah, that's Bethany Eiser's story. She's the author of Mind Estranged, My Journey from Schizophrenia and Homelessness to Recovery. What a great story. That's cool. That's really cool. Yeah. All right. Here we go, psychos. Mass shooters, which is a huge problem in our country. A systematic psychiatric study. About 87% were misdiagnosed and wrongly treated or undiagnosed and untreated. This is by Sarah Au, and it's uh, from Psychology Today. Some key points. A new study indicates there is an association, not a causal relationship, between mass shooting and undiagnosed, untreated psychiatric illness. Researchers found psychiatric illnesses including schizophrenia, mood disorders, delusional disorders, severe personality disorders, and others. Individuals who suffer from psychiatric illness and get appropriate treatment are not any more violent than the rest of the population. Here we go. It's every American's worst nightmare, a mass shooting. The subject of mental health is brought up every time, and yet there is a dearth of psychiatric research since perpetrators often die in the incident and those who survive are mired in legal repercussions. Nina Serfolio, MD, clinical assistant professor at ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York, 
wanted to look deeper into the underlying psychiatric, psychosocial, and psychodynamic data. She conducted what she says is the first ever systematic psychiatric research on this complex topic with co-authors Ira Glick, M.D., Danielle Camus, M.D., and Michael Lawrence, J.D. Their study published online with open access in February 2022 and is included in the September 2022 print issue of the Psychodynamic Psychiatry Journal. Sir Folio's team focused primarily on the ample forensic psychiatric assessments done in prison on the 35 assailants who survived incidents in the United States between 1982 and 2019. They combed through psychiatric evaluations from the judicial proceedings, interviewed the forensic psychiatrists who conducted direct assessments, and examined the shooter's backgrounds. Additionally, they randomly selected 20 deceased shooters from the same time period and analyzed all the information they could find. After gathering all the clinical and background information, they then determined whether the perpetrators could be diagnosed with psychiatric illness by utilizing standardized instruments such as the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, DSM-5, and the Sheehan MINI Standardized Scale, which assesses functional impairment in work social-slash-leisure activities, and family life. Four takeaways. Their findings showed a high prevalence of undiagnosed psychiatric illness in mass shooters. The majority of surviving shooters, 87.5% of them, had misdiagnosed and incorrectly treated or undiagnosed and untreated psychiatric uh, illness. Researchers found psychiatric illnesses including schizophrenia, mood disorders, delusional disorder, severe personality disorders, substance-related disorders, and PTSD. There was insufficient information in three cases. Next, next uh, point here, next uh, bullet point. A clinical diag- uh, misdiagnosis and mistreatment of pre-pubertal early-onset schizophrenia was associated with the worsening of many of these assailant psychotic symptoms. Most perpetrators studied experienced profound estrangement not only from families, friends, and classmates, but most importantly from themselves. Being marginalized and interpersonally shunned rendered them more vulnerable to their un-slash-mistreated psychiatric illness and to radicalization online, which fostered their violence. Quote, Each mass shooting is unique and occurs due to a synthesis of psychology, personal circumstances, and environment. It is essential to clarify that we are not stating that psychiatric illness causes these acts of violence, states Serfolio. Quote, rather, our findings suggest there is a complex interaction between biological, psychological, and sociological factors and an association, not a causal relationship, between mass shooting and undiagnosed, untreated psychiatric illness. It's important to remember that most individuals who suffer from psychiatric illness and get appropriate treatment are not any more violent than the rest of the population. End quote. Yeah. The most common diagnosis, schizophrenia. Serfolio, etc., 2022, found that 18 of the 35 surviving shooters had schizophrenia, overwhelmingly the most common diagnosis. In 15 of 20 cases in which the assailant died, the researchers determined that eight had schizophrenia. None were on appropriate medication. Quote, many of our adolescent shooters prior to the massacre had been misdiagnosed with attention deficit disorder, major depression disorder, or autism spectrum disorder, says Serfolio. Why weren't they diagnosed correctly? Quote, the DSM-5 
prevents a definitive diagnosis of schizophrenia before 18 years of age because the adolescent brain is still developing, Sir Folio explains. Quote, however, there are identifiable early onset schizophrenia symptoms. So it is extremely important to provide an adolescent experiencing early onset symptoms, such as hallucinations and delusions, with crucial psychiatric treatment and antipsychotic medication. The earlier treatment is initiated, the better the clinical outcome to stop their psychotic symptoms. Yeah. There you go. There is a, uh, a limitation or uh, an imperfection with the DSM-5. What this means going forward. What can American society, especially, especially mental health professionals, glean from this study going forward? The details hold some important lessons. One, quote, While there are complex reasons why a person may not be diagnosed, there remains an urgent need to decrease the stigma of mental illness to enable those suffering from psychiatric illness to be more uh, respected to be, to be more respected to receive care, Sir Folio says. More on this below. Two, awareness of the possibility of underdiagnosis of mental disorders, particularly in young males, is crucial for both the professional community and parents. Vulnerable individuals need help in order to seek access and receive the psychiatric support they need and deserve. Three, Sir Folio says this study underscores how important it is for mental health professionals to refer a person struggling with psychosis for a medical evaluation by a board-certified psychiatrist who can prescribe life-saving psychiatric medications. Stigma is still the largest impediment. As is often reported in the aftermath of a mass shooting, many perpetrators have a history of being marginalized or bullied. This study found that many also suffered neglect or abuse. Sir Folio says they felt worthless, had no place in the world, and nothing to offer anyone. They are also often extremely smart and thus were able to hide their psychosis to avoid being labeled with a mental illness. That is, until a life crisis occurs, which is often the triggering event that provokes their violence. Family members can also be afraid of the stigma. The study highlighted one case where the family of a 15-year-old school shooter had concealed his psychiatric symptoms from a treating psychologist. Quote, Given the social stigma of mental illness, these mass shooters did not receive proper psychiatric care until they were incarcerated, says Sir Folio. Quote, the ironic tragedy with some of these assailants was that their brain illness responded well to antipsychotic medication while they were incarcerated and their violent acts might have been prevented if they had received proper psychiatric medication prior to their shooting spree. End quote. Sir Folio warns of the larger societal issues uh, that is a contributing factor. The larger... <clears throat> the larger societal issue that is a contributing factor. Quote, Many people focus on diagnoses, but we also must start focusing on people who are isolated and have been discarded by society, often even by their own family. They don't know how to get help or can't access help on their own. Mass shootings will continue to happen in America until we address this epidemic as a society. Yeah. Yeah. Stigma. Is a huge, huge barrier to people getting help still. And it's sad, especially with so many people dealing with mental health issues. Oh my goodness. In our crazy society, in this crazy world, in this challenging world, in this, in this world where so many folks are desperate. You know? Yeah. And that is such an interesting thing. The uh, the idea of people being mentally ill connected with violence. And that leads us right into our next piece uh, entitled, Do Mass Shootings Increase the Belief That People with Mental Illness Are Dangerous? And this is by Emily Manis. And it's uh, from Cypost is the name of the outlet.
So let's jump right in. With each mass shooting comes reinvigorated conversations about the role mental illness may have played in the atrocity. But do these events really affect how people think about the mentally ill? A study published in Personality and Social Psychology suggests the belief that mentally ill people are dangerous can spike after a major event, but when it does, it is short-lived. America has seen a massive rise in mass shootings in recent years. Media coverage of these events often points to real or assumed mental illness as a factor that contributed to the violence. Realistically, even though mental illness is extremely widespread in this country, the vast majority of mentally ill people are nonviolent, with only approximately 3% committing a violent act in the last year. Regardless, media coverage can lead to negative perceptions of people struggling with their mental health. The new study sought to follow trends on perceived dangerousness of mentally ill people over the span of eight years. I think this is a worthwhile thing to do, psychos, to look into this, because the general population perceives all mentally ill people as being potentially dangerous. That can only increase stigma uh, against people dealing with mental health issues and for people uh, personally, how they feel about themselves in terms of stigma. Study author Miranda L. Uh, Beltzer and colleagues collected data from 38,094 U.S. participants who completed this online study between 2011 and 2019. Participants completed an implicit association test about danger and measures on perceived dangerousness, uh, gender career bias, and media coverage each week. The researchers selected six mass shootings with high fatalities to, to serve as the events for this study, including the Sandy Hook and Parkland school shootings, and used time series intervention analysis on weekly data to see their effects. The researchers found no significant lasting effects of the mass shootings on participants' perception of the dangerousness of people with mental illness. The event that showed the most significant effect on the results was Sandy Hook. Following the Sandy Hook shooting, both implicit and explicit perceived dangerousness significantly increased, and while implicit dangerousness went back to baseline very quickly, fairly quickly, the effects on explicit perceptions of danger of dangerousness lingered. These effects were not seen for other shootings examined in this study. Additionally, Sandy Hook stood out from other shootings because increases in media coverage of Sandy Hook predicted future increases in perceived dangerousness. Increases in media coverage did not predict increases in perceived dangerousness for the other events. The researchers said that, quote, given the larger effects of Sandy Hook versus other events on perceived dangerousness, and the stronger relations among its media coverage and perceived dangerousness, future studies may wish to qualitatively compare the type of media coverage after mass shootings. Did fewer articles about Sutherland Springs refer to the mental illness of the shooter as causal? Did more note that most people with mental illnesses are nonviolent? Did the gun violence prevention activism of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School students help to steer the public conversation away from attributing violence to mental illness? End quote. Quote, Another sobering possibility is that with the alarming frequency of mass shootings in the United States, each one is increasingly less shocking to the public, leading to smaller effects on perceived dangerousness, the researchers added. This study helped better understand if mass shootings cause significant biases against mentally ill people. Despite this, there are some limitations to note. One such limitation is that the study follows overall macro-level trends, and it is important to not equate that with individual-level patterns. Additionally, though the sample was very large, it was not demographically representative of the U.S. population. The study, Effects of Mass Shootings on Mental Illness Stigma in the United States, was authored by Miranda L. Beltzer, 
Robert G. Mulder, Casey Baker, Kara Comer, and Bethany A. Teachman. All right, so that's interesting. There's some limitations to the study. Honestly, found it a little bit hard to follow while reading it out loud. But uh, it's just a messy situation all around, you know. Uh, Mass shootings are such a horror. Mental illness in America is such a struggle. Thank goodness the uh, stats show that most mentally ill people are nonviolent. Does it increase stigma? It must. It must. And that's sad. It is sad. Hopefully more people can get help. Hopefully uh, the psycho community here, we're doing our little part by sharing some uh, some tips and ways to uh, stay on top of our mental health, thinking about it, focusing on it, at least for this hour or so that we're together each week. You know? Yeah. All right, let's move on to our final piece for uh, this episode of Take Your Pills, Psychopath. Um, It is uh, entitled Nine Delta Male Traits and Characteristics. It's by Sarah Christensen, and it's from a publication called Happier Human. Here we go. Being in a relationship with a male can be tricky, especially if you don't know what type of male he is. I know most of you are wondering, quote, aren't all guys the same? Actually, they're not. They could be an alpha, beta, gamma, sigma, omega, or delta male. Each one of these types of male comes with pros and cons. In this post, you'll discover nine delta male traits and how dating one affects a relationship. All right, we're not going in order here learning about every type of uh, male, but we're going to do delta. We're going right to the last one. Well, I don't know if it's the last one. I don't know if they have an order. Well, I guess alpha, beta, but I don't know. I don't know what's going on. Obviously, delta would come before omega. An omega male? What? Okay, here we go. What is a delta male? Basically, you can think of a delta as the average Joe. It's the most common type of male. Plus, you'll find them in the middle of the pack instead of being leaders or outliers. This is because they're hardworking guys that show up and contribute to society. Then they sit back and take pride in their contributions. Thus, they don't want to stand out at work. Instead, they want to get the job done and go home. As a result, they're often described as the backbone of society because they do the jobs necessary to keep society functioning efficiently. In addition, deltas strive for efficiency. How dating a delta male can affect a relationship. Being in a relationship with a delta male can have its positives and negatives. How it affects the relationship really depends on how you handle the situation. Positives. First off, Settling down with a delta male is safe. They're reliable and committed. As a result, you won't have to worry about them being unfaithful because delta males often feel content within themselves. They bring a sense of security into a relationship. All right. Negatives. While the above-mentioned things may be a positive for you, if that's what you're looking for, others may find it a tad bland. Deltas don't like to shake up the status quo if it's efficient. Therefore, they tend to stick with the more traditional ways, including dating. If you're someone that craves adventure and spontaneity, then a delta may not be the right one for you. Okay. Also, a delta's contentment with work may be viewed by some as lack of ambition. This could be unattractive to some. Finally, deltas tend to be secretive, which could be adverse to a healthy relationship. Healthy relationships require trust, and delta males tend to have a strong mistrust of others. This is usually due to a negative experience with trusting others earlier in life. 
All right, this is interesting. It's worth knowing. I wanted to learn about Delta males because I never heard of it before. And we're learning about Delta males, you psychos. Why not? Nine traits and characteristics of a Delta male. Having seen what a Delta is and how dating a Delta can affect a relationship, take a look at these nine traits and characteristics. One, introverted. Because a Delta is introverted, this may make them quiet and reserved. While they may appear uninterested, they're actually analyzing things internally. They'll speak up when they feel they have something important to say based upon their analysis. In addition, being an introvert also means that a Delta can tend to be a loner. While they may participate in larger social interactions at times, they'll need time afterwards to decompress. More importantly, they may find it hard to make friends. This is because, as introverts, they may have difficulty expressing what's going on in their brain. In addition, they may not speak up because they don't like to draw attention to themselves. Don't be mistaken, a Delta male knows what he wants. He just doesn't let ego get in the way. Delta male sounds alright. 2. Mysterious or secretive as mentioned earlier, deltas can be secretive. This tends to be connected to being introverted. Often deltas have been described as having a wall around them. Actually, this could be attributed to his mistrust of others. He's not going to let his guard down until he knows you better and can trust you. Until then, he'll withhold information about himself. Even once he knows you, a delta may still not share his deepest fears or insecurities. They guard their privacy. 3. Low self-esteem. Often, a man becomes a Delta over time due to some bad prior experiences. They've been hurt or rejected, so they shut themselves off and keep their heads down. This may lead a Delta to shy away from romantic interests due to fear of rejection. As for work, a Delta is not a ladder climber. Therefore, he won't go after promotions for the same reason. Moreover, a Delta doesn't seek praise. Instead, he takes pride in having accomplished the task. 4. No desire to lead. It's not that the Delta male has no leadership skills, they just don't have a desire to lead. Because they value getting the job done, they'll work as hard as others to accomplish the task. Because they have no drive to be praised, they put their nose to the grind and do the things needed for the team to be successful. In fact, he loves having less responsibility. With decreased responsibility, he can focus more on the things he is actually responsible for. 5. Hopeless Romantic even though a Delta male may not aggressively pursue romantic interests, he still believes that he will find true love. He believes all that hard work will pay off and he'll be seen as a great provider and somebody deeply committed. Just don't expect overly romantic gestures. Being introverted works against that. Instead, he'll be loyal and reliable. Because he doesn't feel the need to assert himself, he will put his partner first. That's how he will show his romantic side, by being faithful and, and putting his partner first. Therefore, therefore, while they are romantic, it's a quieter display of romance, just like the Delta is a quieter type of male. 6. Doesn't have to please alphas. Unlike betas, a Delta doesn't feel the need to please an alpha. Along the same lines, he doesn't feel the need to become an alpha. He's secure in his place in the hierarchy, whereas alphas pay close attention to the rules of the game so that they can advance, a Delta doesn't care about society's rules. A Delta doesn't live to please others. He's a lone wolf in this regard. Society's rules are beneficial to him, as long as it helps get the job done. 7. Non-competitive. For the beta, position doesn't matter. Maybe it means to say for the delta. For the delta, position doesn't matter. Often he has resigned himself to his current position. Therefore, they won't compete for a higher or better position. Also, being introverted and having a, a low self-esteem will curb any aggressive, competitive nature within a delta. Another reason for deltas being non-competitive is that they tend to be passive in relation to others. This can be seen in the lack of participation in sports activities or other competitions. 8. Desire Respect A delta male desires to be respected for the job that they do. They take pride in their competence and want to see that competence acknowledged. Any hierarchy that doesn't respect a delta for a job well done will need to be reconsidered. Unfortunately, because of low self-esteem, being non-competitive may cause deltas to be overused by others in the hierarchy, which may lead to resentment. 9. Can move up or down the hierarchy. A delta's place in the social hierarchy is determined by the delta. They can move up or down in social status. For example, a delta can become a beta male if he applies himself more. 
Most often he's content and chooses not to promote himself. Unfortunately, because of low self-esteem, a delta can also slide downward within the hierarchy. This often happens if the delta experiences more tragedies. What to do if you've discovered you're dating a delta and are unhappy about it? There you have it. While a delta has some positive traits like reliability and competence, they also have some negative traits that may be off-putting as well. If you discover that you're dating a delta and are unhappy about it, there are several things you can do. Encourage them to stand up for themselves. Promote positive traits to build, uh, to build low self-esteem. Support them as they pursue change. Discuss with them the need for communication. Look for their good qualities. Ultimately, if you're unhappy with your relationship with the Delta, you have to decide whether or not you want to commit to helping them change or not. If not, then the situation may turn toxic. Ending a relationship is never easy, but staying in a toxic relationship isn't healthy for, ev- for everyone involved. Final thoughts on the Delta male. As you can see, Delta males are often a product of how they respond to their experiences. While positive traits like commitment and competence are appreciated, the negative characteristics like no ambition are traits that need to be addressed. Unfortunately, a Delta may not be interested in changing. If that's the case, this could cause this could create tension in a relationship. In the end, you may have to decide if staying in a relationship with a Delta male is the healthiest choice for them and yourself. Compatibility plays a major role in the success of a relationship, and you have to decide if you're compatible with a Delta. If you're in a relationship with a Delta and want to know how to deal with someone that shuts himself off, check out our 11 Steps to Deal with an Emotionally Unavailable Man, if you may want to find more insight. Cool. All right. That's the Delta mail. All right. That was a little bit uh, kind of like dating advice piece i didn't expect it to really be about that um but we did learn the traits of a delta male uh hope you psychos found that interesting is anybody out there uh delta which sounds like uh not a bad thing to be per se the backbone of society sounds good to me um is anybody dating a delta anybody in a relationship with a delta how's that working out let me know at takeyourpillspod at gmail.com. Yeah, just email me about the uh, the uh, intimacy of your relationship. <laughs> you don't got to do that. Come on. So, yeah, that has been what we have covered today. I think it's been an interesting episode. I appreciate all of you listening. Um, yeah, what I'll say is just a reminder to please check out my stand-up special the Manic Depressive Chocolate Fountain Operator. Let's get to 12K views. I'm hoping to get to 15 in the next month. But let's hit that 12K mark. Would be awesome. All you got to do is type John F. O'Donnell into the search on YouTube and you can find it. Leave a nice comment and a like. Thumbs up and a comment. It really helps. And I like reading them. I'll be honest. I like reading the comments. Join the Patreon if you can afford to. Patreon.com slash J5 for bonus content. Um, and yeah, this has been another episode of Take Your Pills Psychopath, the comedy podcast that exploits mental illness for personal profit. A ka-ching, what? Trademark. I have been your host, John F. O'Donnell. I appreciate you psychos so much listening, uh, and I hope that you enjoy your day, your morning, your afternoon, your evening, wherever you are out there. Love you guys. Bye.